2 Timothy 2. When you need a, if you're ever having one of those days where you need a good spiritual, just shot of umph, adrenaline, spiritual adrenaline, turn to 2 Timothy and just read any verse. Most likely it'll, it'll do the trick. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Understand what I say, for the Lord will give you insight in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, of the seed of David, according to my gospel, for which I endure hardship, even to chains as a criminal, but the word of God has not been chained. Father in heaven, you are gracious and compassionate and we thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth and this morning as we as we pull up anchor and set sail into another day we ask that you would fill us with your grace and the spiritual fervor and strength to do something of what we read here in 2 Timothy, to be strong in your grace, to entrust these things that we have studied to other faithful men, to endure what you might have for us. For apart from you, we are weak and frail, and we are needy men. You alone are self-sufficient and strong, and we ask for your grace. Thank you for these brothers. Uh, thank you for that. really the the unique unity we have in here, Father, the, the fraternal bond in Christ, being entrusted with these things from your word. We, I thank you for these men who have persevered this year and who have taken up the call of biblical masculinity to gather together to, to feast and fellowship and study. Father, we thank you foremost for the Lord Jesus our Savior, our righteousness, our Good Shepherd, our Mediator, the one who brings us into the presence of God and will carry us into eternal life. And I pray for us as men, Father, that you would strengthen us one final time as we gather. Thank you for this food. Let us be the better off for our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, gentlemen. <clears throat> Phil, thank you for breakfast again. Appreciate it. Um, and Ian, thank you for rallying us every week, rather shoulder to shoulder here. So we have, uh, we, we began the year endeavoring to study something of biblical masculinity. If, uh, you saw the news yesterday or maybe you didn't, you were better off if you didn't, um, North Face, like the mountaineering used to be mountaineering, threw their hat in the ring, ascribing to 
the newest religion in the world, uh, Wokeianity, and came out with an ad yesterday uh, <clears throat> where there's a, a grown man with a mustache dressed as a woman with a short miniskirt and tights and a blouse, a flamboyant blouse. Uh, and this wasn't satire, by the way. Uh, and rainbow, shrouded in rainbow colors, prancing around, speaking like a girl, and doing what other, whatever demonic frivolities that are involved in that religion. And so this is, it. this is an interesting time we find ourselves in. First it was Bud Light, then it was Target, then it was Walgreens, and it's, you know, it was the NHL. Uh, the LA Dodgers threw their hat in the ring in an interesting way, too, the other day. I thought that was fascinating. Um, so, you know, it started, we, we started the year, it started with sort of in various ways, you know, the sexual revolution and things that happened in the 60s. And then we had, you know, we had Archie Bunker uh, in the 80s, and then we had... We had Homer Simpson, right, and, and, and various things, and, and now we've gone to a, clothing, a, a, a gear company that's supposed to, you know, outfit you to endure the elements and, you know, power through mountaineering and this kind of thing uh, with a man with a, with a tight rainbow-shrouded miniskirt. So it's an interesting time we find ourselves in. And this, of course, you guys understand. Um, you understand the times and know what we should do that this is a, a straight-up laser. This is not a random thing. This is a, a laser attack on, on two things, on Christ, on Christ, and underneath that, on biblical masculinity. This is not a, we're just doing, what, we're just doing this because it's fun. This is a pointed, structured, architected intentional focus to dismantle the only true savior the true faith the only true religion the way the truth and the life and then his call for men to be as we've been endeavoring to study this year how men are called to be purveyors and and leaders of society as we take up the call from genesis 128 Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15-ish uh, to cultivate, to keep, to subdue and exercise dominion in society, to rule over it, exercising that which was given prior to the fall, biblical masculinity, two genders, where men are to be leaders of themselves, their families, uh, the, the sphere of worship, today the church, and the village, the society. And when you, when you take down this, you dismantle this, and you can, Satan always wants to do the photo negative. That's what he's looking for. Give me the photo negative. Give me the opposite. Um, and so we've been endeavoring to understand this and uh, just, just take a sampling. Certainly so much more could be said about biblical masculinity than what we've endeavored to do in our brief time since October. But uh, it's important that we are discerning and understand that this is no accident. How you go from here, Archie Bunker, to Homer, to a man with a North Face tight skirt. 
pretending to be a woman, rainbow colors. And even if you go on the North Face website, don't. Uh, please never buy anything North Face again. Um, but you'll see, you, you scroll down and there's kids North Face gear too, you know, that has, all, you know, queer this and, and uh, Abomination Month starts next Wednesday or Thursday, I think. Um, but it's really every month now. I mean, kids stuff as well. It's, uh, it's really, a, it's a, and, so, and so this is also, it's, a, it's an attack on children. Because as Dewey and others uh, who constructed various things in society understood that you need to get the kids, right? And this is why different uh, totalitarian regimes, a sociological study in history could show you many of these regimes sought to get the kids early, right? And this is exactly what's happening, but with a smile on it and a freedom stamp that it's no such thing. It's total enslavement, satanic abomination, reprehensible. Uh, demonic and slavery, total and slavery, total uh, tyranny in kind of a different way. Satan's not real creative. He just kind of does the same thing over and over, just in different, in different ways. Yeah, that's Abomination Month that I just mentioned. Yeah, June 1st, yep. Yeah, it's uh, the Abomination of Desolation Month. Um, Sodomite Month. Uh, if we were to use just plain biblical terms, nothing exaggerated. Um, but also, but also for us, prayer, prayer month, pray extra month, pray a little more month for individuals enslaved in this demonic uh, rehensibility and abomination. Prayer, pray that God would open hearts and pray that God would open doors for you to have a conversation with someone in love, uh, to call them to repentance and faith. Right? This is also a mission field, notwithstanding the demonic re reprehensibility that it is. Okay. All right. So we've, uh, we're finishing. Uh, we have quite a bit to do today. Um, we're finishing uh, last week and this week. We've looked at masculinity and the fear of God, masculinity and family, masculinity and marriage and masculinity and isolationism and the, and the sin that that is. Masculinity and pride, masculinity and the greatest temptations for men, masculinity and our dangerous, most dangerous spiritual enemies. And uh, at, at the request of some of us, uh, we're doing masculinity in the mind. First Peter 1.13, masculinity in the mind. Many errors in, in contemporary Christianity, um, the charismatic movement would be one of them, uh, among others, could be avoided if we were trained better in just biblical thinking and the discipline of logic which is really the discipline of hermeneutics and uh, natural revelation and just proper thinking uh, according to God's ways. First uh, Peter 1.13. Uh, if someone has that, would you just read it real quick, please? Gird up your minds, right? Stand firm in the faith. Be, uh, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So we're looking at the discipline of proper reasoning and logic. This is really the, the, the base, the foundation of hermeneutics, which is an essential discipline to rightly understand the word of God. God didn't give us a, a butterfly that speaks um, or paintings or hunches to understand his will and how to make decisions in life and understand all things pertaining to life and godliness. But he gave us his word, and we observed last week 
that logic. You know, God has done some interesting things in creation. You know, you have like, uh, you have like the, the, the human heart um, and, and you have human physiology and you have things like other things in creation, like, like photosynthesis. And you have other things in creation, like uh, thermodynamics, a fascinating science uh, that I gave myself to in my undergrad. And then you have, and these are all fixed things that God does, Newtonian mechanics as well. And then you have logic. Logic. So we, we observe these things, right? And we see how did, how did God create the world? How did God create things for his glory? These are fixed laws, how things operate, photosynthesis, thermodynamics, heat transfer, this kind of thing, uh, organic chemistry, quantum mechanics. You could add a lot of things in there. And logic is one of them. And logic is, is kind of a, underneath all this because it helps, us to, it helps us to rightly observe and make conclusions, observe and make conclusions. And then scripture, of course, would be above all of these things because these things are general revelation and scripture is special revelation, right? So in the hierarchy of epistemology and how we know what we know, this rules. And logic helps us, being, being a set of general revelation, helps us observe like what God has, God, how God has objectively created things and then how we observe and conclude how great he is and operate in life, okay? So this is a science, this is a science. Man does not make up the rules of logic any more than he makes up the rules of how much force he can put on a truss and you know, how much, how much uh, heat transfer, how much insulation you need to prevent uh, uh, heat escape from different, different objects and this kind of a thing. No, one, no man makes that up, we observe it. We ascribe terms to it and different things, but we observe it and the rules of logic are the same. No one makes up how to think. And hermeneutics is logic applied, right? It's the science of logic applied. Just like physics, uh, being an engineering major, I studied a lot of physics. Physics is, all physics is, the science of physics is math applied, right? You understand that? It's nothing more than that. It's math applied to how God made the world. Um, and logic is, is lo hermeneutics is logic applied. And as we reason, uh, we, we, we sharpen our mind, and Ecclesiastes 10.10 is really our verse here, that if the axe is dull, you have to swing it harder, right? We want to sharpen the axe of our mind to recognize falsehood, to teach our, those we influence to do the same. And we have to remember, too, though, that as you learn logic, you're, you're, like, you're, you're pulling way ahead of culture. You're becoming a purple belt, a brown belt, you know, proverbially speaking, in jiu-jitsu, and the art of thought. And so, and so you can take, you can really take down just about any buddy, any thought, any false reasoning that, that are just ubiquitous and so prevalent in culture. So this is to be used in, not in pride, but in humility, the, the, this discipline. Just like if, if you get good at jujitsu some, or some martial arts, it's not to be used to go around and carry your weight around in pride, but in humility to, to, to defend. And logic is the same, applied scripturally, it's to take down error, right? Second, Second Corinthians 10.5, in a way that cares that people would come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is most essential not only for these sciences, 
but the preeminent science of understanding and applying Holy Scripture. Okay? Thoughts, questions about that? Um, just start this talk if you, if you use them. So logic is, logic is also built in to uh, the image of God. Every single human irresistibly operates with logic, right? From, from the earliest stage. This is built in. To deny logic is, is a great way, one of the great ways to deny the, the image of God in you. A child touches a hot stove. And it takes a minute and then, ow, and they pull away. And then they don't do that anymore. That's a, that's a logical, that's like a syllogism that they've just created irresistibly in their mind, right? Uh, I feel things on my hand. The hot stove is unpleasant to my to feeling, therefore I will not touch it anymore. Everybody operates by logic. The most vile atheist who is who is on a massive construction project in downtown Philadelphia building a skyscraper and figuring out, you know, the, the maximum crosswind force and how much, you know, what he has to do to compensate for that at, at you know, 190 feet off the deck. He, he is operating with logic continually. He's in submission to God all day long. <laughs> when, when, he, when he does his hobby to show off and use that as self-justification in a, in a form of self-actualization, right, and to worship himself, he is operating in submission to God, general revelation speaking, not, not special, all day long. This is how man operates irresistibly. And so... There, if there's a reason why logic was abandoned in education a long time ago. It has something to do with this, something to do with this, because it forces you into greater objectivity, which, which forces you to acknowledge God and absolutes and that you can't pretend to be something you're not and, and, and that there is objective truth and this kind of thing. Okay, so there's a reason it's been denied. We, we last week, we started with the law of non-contradiction where we dealt with the uh, unfortunate, your unfortunate atheist friend comes and, comes and says cheekily, can God make a rock so, so big and so heavy that he can't lift? And we showed how the law of non-contradiction dismantles that back upon himself. And it's a non-question, right? It's a non-statement, right? It's, it's like saying, how loud can a table eat roses? You know, it, it's, it, it's a total illogical statement. Um, and we showed that last week. Now, and finishing from our notes, from our notes uh, last week, we left off uh, letter C, man and logic. Uh, we talked about that just being rational. Man irresistibly operates according to the rules of logic. Um, and, and this is a, if you, if you watch some debates, uh, Doug Wilson had a good debate before uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, didn't go to glory. At least we don't think he did. He said if I, when he had throat cancer, he said if I start talking about Jesus and faith in Christ, consider me a madman, and I don't really believe it. And they had a debate, and, and at one point in the debate, has anyone seen this debate? I think at one point in the debate, Doug Wilson says, well, you actually have to cease your reasoning because you're using God's rules, rules of logic to further your point. So where do you get those? You have to go elsewhere, right? And that was a very intelligent, Christopher Hitchin was utterly owned in that debate, notwithstanding how brilliant people say he is and how brilliant he thought he was. Um, <clears throat> he got owned, waved. I mean, he got put to the mat like he was a first-day white belt, you know, by a fifth-degree black belt, 
um, by that point alone. Um, so th this is hardwired into us. Man's sinful nature, however, distorts his ability and willingness to use, use logic to glorify God. And Romans 1.18 is an, ev an evidence of that. It tells us about that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. In other words, man is a creature who reasons and irresistibly operates by God's rules of logic, yet he, he suppresses the knowledge of God. Right? Just like the astonishing design of things in the human heart, growth of a tree, flight of a falcon, I'll testify to a designer and being greater than a heart tree and falcon, so the rules of logic testify to a ruler. You always want to ask your friend, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at eight logical fallacies, probably some of the most common. You want to ask your, your friend, Alex Atheist, you know, or Bob Buddhist, you know, if he's saying you committed a logical fallacy, you want to ask him, where did you get, where did you get that? Where did you, how did you understand that those are rules? Where did those come from? Because those are set and you operate as if those are objective and, and, and fixed. So you always want to call that, call that out. Well, that requires an objective source, a ruler. Okay. Um, the limits of logic, I'm going I'm to just cruise through this quickly. We have to be careful. Logic can bring you to reason that, that there is the God of the Bible, but it cannot tell you that there was this guy, Abraham, through whom the Savior came 2,000 later, 2000 years later. Uh, he was the righteous God-man who earned a righteousness for us in his life as he lived obedient to the law, died to pay the penalty that the law demanded for our lack of righteousness. He rose from the grave three days later in faith. Logic can't get you there. Special revelation only can, right? Logic gets you to the place where, oh my word, I need a Savior. But logic can't tell you the details of who he is. Because logic is a subset of general revelation. And general revelation is enough to hold man accountable and to render him condemned. Right? We saw that in Romans 1 and 2. But it's not enough to save him. He needs the knowledge of the gospel. Why study logic? Um, to sharpen our minds. We've been talking about that. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Um, and because, teacher, Matthew twenty two thirty six, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? Christianity is an endeavor of the mind. God gave us reasoning powers and logic. They're redeemed in loving God with all of our mind. And logic is an, uh, 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 an essential, a sine qua non tool to love God with all our Mind. It enables us to better discern the meaning of a text. Um, it's hermeneutics. The Westminster Confession uh, 1.6 says in your notes there, quote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And logic, applied hermeneutics, is how is it, the reformers understood that logic is inherent to that phrase in the Westminster Confession that we can understand things like cessationism and the Trinity and other essential doctrines, the doctrines of sovereign grace, by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. 
See how that works there? Logic is essential to that, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. To avoid her hermeneutical errors of contradicting interpretations of a text or doctrine, how to handle apparent contradictions, to be discerning in the face of error, Ephesians 4 tells us, don't be children anymore, brethren. We're exhorted, don't be children. Children are tossed to and fro by new doctrines and new beliefs. Be grounded. Logic helps us, again, in the discipline of hermeneutics, how to do that, to not be children, to discern error. All right? Now, um, the law of non-contradiction, I give you two examples here, maybe three. Uh, in, your, in last week's notes, and I want to get to some of our fallacies, but I just want to show you a couple of things. Um, the law of non-contradiction. If you don't have these notes from last week, I think a couple of us, uh, Brett needs some, John needs some from last week. Bottom of page seven from last week's notes. Uh, two, I just want to show you two common things that logic helps us discern. Number one, Judas and the law of non-contradiction. Judas. There are two texts that are hotly debated and, and a clever atheist who you know, has been to, been to uh, like an Ivy League school and taken his goofy religion class there, his professor will say, we got Christianity on this one, where he'll say, Judas in Matthew 27, 5, it says, it says he went away and hanged himself. But in Acts chapter 1, 18, it says that Judas fell headlong and his guts spilled out on the ground. Ha, contradiction, we gotcha. And so as you're talking to um, Ivy League Ivan, and discussing with him because you love him, not because you're trying to be prideful over him. Um, uh, neither You understand that neither statement about Judas contradicts each other, right? Um, the law of non-contradiction uh, is fully in play here. If it was a contradiction, this is, this is an issue in, in like biblical discussion, believe it or not. A contradiction would be, would be to say that Judas fell on the ground and his bowels didn't spell out, and Judas fell on the ground and his bowels did spell out. Right? Remember the law of non-contradiction is A cannot be A and non-A in the same time, place, context, and relationship. Okay? So you understand that he could have hanged himself on a tree. Eventually the branch breaks, the rope breaks, whatever happens, he falls down in this gruesome scene that Acts 118 doesn't hold back from that that plays out. Okay? That's an easy one. The doctrine of election as well, non-contradiction. Some have proposed that the biblical doctrine of election uh, and man's responsibility rep uh, to repent violate the law of non-contradiction. That's a discussion. In other words, God predestines people to be saved, which the scriptures are radically and abundantly clear about. But man must repent. He's held responsible to be saved. And therefore, it's a contradiction. Is this a violation? Of course not. It's not saying God did not make the decision and he did make the decision, or people don't make the decision to repent, and they do make the decision. Rather, it's we are responsible to repent, and God also elects. Those are not contradictions. It's not saying A and non-A. It's not saying he chose and didn't choose in the same time and relationship. That doesn't mean it's not hard to figure out how that works, but it's not a contradiction. And we looked at last week as well as the example of the Trinity. It's not saying a lot of people who don't understand the Trinity will say your, your doctrine of the Trinity is a contradiction. It violates the law of non-contradiction. But we're not saying God is three gods and one God, but rather we are saying what? He is one God and 
three persons. Okay? All right. You guys get it. Okay, let's go to today's notes for the last half of the class. Um, and I want to look at eight logical fallacies. Um, you could add to this, you could elaborate on it, but just a, just a couple. And there are, I, I saw one person who said that there are 163 logical fallacies out there. A lot of them are subsets of each other, but these are eight very common ones. Again, see to it, Colossians 2.8, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, world rather than according to Christ. These help sharpen us in discernment and ascertaining truth from the text and helping other people see doctrinal errors, philosophical errors, reasoning errors, because there's nothing more important, beloved, than people come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's why we're doing this. Not so we can show how awesome we are and just dismantle everyone's foolish arguments. And you could do that because logical fallacies and foolish reasoning are just everywhere. And it's shameful and it's shamefully, they're shamefully prevalent, right? And it's a commentary on our society. That's why a book was appropriately written, The Dumbest Generation. Um, that was actually written like 12 years ago about our generation. Okay, and may God help us. Our, our goal, like Titus says, and uh, like Paul says to Titus in Titus 1, is to help people come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay? In no particular order, the red herring fallacy. You've heard of this, right? It comes from, so the story goes, uh, the, the, the old Englishmen who were hunted foxes back in the day and their dogs. What kind of dogs did they, did they use to hunt foxes in England? What were they called? Were they beagles? Wow, okay. The, 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 glor the, the glorious beagle. So you understand the story, right? There's, when you go into the forest, there's lots of smells, especially if you're a beagle and your, your olfactory glands are like 60,000 times more powerful than a human. And you're getting left and getting right and getting distracted, so they'd take red herring, a very strong, nasty-smelling fish. They'd wipe the trail to create a, a great distraction to teach the dogs don't go to the right, don't go to the left, don't follow the red herring smell. It's like, a, you know, anybody like herring? Anybody eat herring? I do too. <laughs> uh, follow the fox scent no matter what distraction comes before you. Right? That's the, that's the story. Is it legend? Is it, I don't know. But it's what it's called. The definition, this argument. So remember, fallacies are fallacious or wrong ways of arguing. Again, this is a fixed science. I love that. You should love that too. Fixed, immovable ways of reasoning. Brings an irrelevant point into discussion for the purpose of distraction. Examples, a dad says, hey son, did you load and unload the dishwasher? Well, dad, you know, yesterday I swept the floor. I swept the floor, dad. Well, that's great that you did that, but Scripture says, obey your parents and the Lord, and I asked you to load and unload the dishwasher, right? I swept the floor, shiny red ball, red herring. You get it. That's an easy one. Or not yet, your not-yet-believer friend says, so you believe this guy Jesus actually came back from the dead? You believe that? I, not long ago, I asked some of my uh, undergrad friends this, with whom I graduated, your unbeliever friend says, 
did you say yeah he did rise from the dead and and you're not yet believer friend says that's just weird and besides christianity has a morally tainted history like the inquisitions and the crusades and such shiny red ball red herring over here right it may be unusual for someone to rise from the dead and true that some people who say they believe in christ have tainted the moral history but that has zero zero bearing on the veracity of the claim that Christ rose from the dead and the burden of responsibilities you to prove that he didn't. Okay? Easy examples. We're going to go through these quickly. Um, you could add to this. Ad hominem, right? Ad hominem, the Latin phrase just means to the man or like at the man against the man. The fallacy which attacks, and Owen knows all these already because in the Cornerstone Homeschool Co-op, we've, we've been studying logic all year. Um, it attacks the, your opponent with whom you're reasoning, rather than objectively addressing the argument with objective rules of reasoning. Okay, a common and so, so common and so easy to, to see. Angus Atheist says to you, you know, the Bible says that Jesus the carpenter is going to fly back to earth on the clouds one day for everyone to see. You think that's true? And Steadfast Steve says it absolutely is true and what a great day that'll be. And Angus says, that's just beyond silly, you've lost your mind. A simple example, Angus may have temporarily relieved himself of having to deal with the certainty of Christ's return by reviling steadfast Steve, but he has in no way refuted the objective claim of Christ's bodily return. Instead, he's made himself look incompetent by his fallacious reasoning. Okay, that does nothing to take back the argument. Tired, faithful dad says, okay, kids, time to get up and get ready for church. Junior says, uh, why do we have to go? It's so boring, dad. And TFD says, remember, we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining, kids. I know it can be hard, but our God is so good. Worship for us is our greatest need, and he's so worthy of worship. Well, you're a sinner too, dad. You've complained. You're no one to talk. Despite Junior's steadfast astuteness, correctly identifying TFD as a sinner, his argument in no way refutes the claim that every single attitude and action is to be absent of grumbling and complaining in a human being. Okay? Uh, faithful, mature, loving Christian friend says, look, to uh, one of his friends in sin, look, we all need the death of Christ for our sins. No one's better than anyone else. I certainly am deserving of hell. But you've been in a pattern of just really speaking uncharitably about people and, and just kind of not believing the best, answering matters before you hear, making quick conclusions, erring on the side of condemning someone rather than understanding what, what's going on. And you need to stop and ask their forgiveness. And you need to ask people's forgiveness who heard what you said. And Glassjaw Joe says, what do you mean? I trusted you as a friend, as someone to confide in and share my heart with things I'm struggling with, how unloving of you. Besides, you're not really one to talk. I've heard you gossip before. And faithful, mature, loving Christian friend says, I've probably sinned like this in the past. You're right. But that doesn't change the fact that you're in a pattern of gossip and you need to repent and stop. You see how prevalent logical fallacies are. And logical fallacies are ungodly ways of reasoning. It's a form of ungodliness. It's not you made an innocent mistake in your thermodynamic, you know, your R value that you're calculating for a house in zone three. 
It's, it's an ungodly way of reasoning. It's denying the image of God. The Pharisees did this. Matthew 22, a demon, there, there's logical fallacies all over Scripture, and God puts them there on purpose as object lessons, in my opinion. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him. So he spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed, and some said, this man can't be the son of David, can he? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. That's, that's, that, that's, that's ad hominem, 100%. That in no way, calling him Satan, in no way takes away the fact that he has been systematically fulfilling Isaiah 35, and the text wants us to see that. This is ad hominem. The genetic fallacy, number three. The definition of it is to reject an argument because of its origin, where it came from, right? I don't like sandals because hippie invent, hippies invented them, right? That, that idea. Um, sometimes the genetic fallacy is similar to the modern fallacy, the idea that a claim is superior because, because of its proximity to the present, because it's closer. Well, we're more modern is the idea. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis uh, was, talked a lot about logic in his writing, and he said this is called chronological snobbery, this one, chronological snobbery. Examples, the idea that homosexuality is wrong can't be true because the argument that it is wrong came from a book that, and writings that originated in ultra-conservative BC days from a priestly class. That's a justification for why homosexuality can't be wrong. That's a fallacy, it's the genetic fallacy. To justify the practice of homosexuality on the grounds of distance of time and cultural political persuasion of someone who presumably, uh, through whom the word of God came, in no way furthers the argument that homosexuality is morally impermissible. Does nothing to the argument. Uh, another example, truth suppressor Trey comes and says to you one day, the world could not have been made by God, some some god in the sky, an old man with a beard. I read a, book in, I read a book in college in honors college. This was an honors college class on uh, anthropology. And the book starts out, if you believe that an old man with a beard made the universe in six days, you're not going to understand this book. I, I bid you simply a good day. One of the most arrogant statements I've ever seen in literature, but such is... Uh, the religious pulpits of many universities. Uh, Truth Suppressor Trey says, that idea came from a book which knew nothing of modern science. They didn't, they didn't understand biochemistry like we do today in quantum mechanics and organic chemistry. And you gently and lovingly answer back, Genesis was given in a time when people did not likely possess the understanding of God's creation that we have today. However, that in no way disproves the fact that an intelligent creator did make all things in six days. And the other genetic fallacy, John 1.45, Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says, I found the Messiah, Jesus is Nazareth. And what's the fallacy? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Rejecting the Messiah based on his origin. It's a form of a genetic fallacy. Mr. Neal. Yes. Yes, it could be. Yeah, very good. 
Did everyone catch that? Yeah. I don't know what that fallacy is called, <laughs> uh, but if you do, let me know. But that, that's, I mean, again, you can think of so many fallacies if you, as you start ruminating on this, right? Something started good, therefore it, yeah, it, it's like inerrant, right, in a sense. It can't deviate. Yeah, very good. Um, the sentimental or experiential fallacy, a very common one, especially in Pentecostal theology. Um, the Pentecostal theology origins come from many fallacies, but this is one of the big ones. Okay, When appeal to sentimentality, emotion, or experience is used to further or reject a claim as opposed to factual and objective reasoning. Right? The, the, the experiential or sentimentality. Um, a couple examples. You're not yet believer friend. So, says, so, you're saying that my, and I had a buddy say this in a different form to me before, a buddy with, with whom I graduated. And it was a very difficult moment. He says, so, you're saying that my grandfather, who was a decent guy but was a Buddhist, that if he died believing that, he's in hell now? burning forever. And I had one of my friends say that to me, except his, that is of his dad who had perished, who, was, who, who worshipped the Cherokee religion. He said, you're saying my dad who died worshipping the Cherokee religion is in hell now? And I never said that to him, but he was clicking as we were talking. And a loving believer would say something like, look, this is God's word, not mine. I don't know what your dear grandfather believed. But here we are, still alive, and we have the opportunity today to receive the great love of God by faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness and eternal life. And we could continue in saying, this is what the text says, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Let us turn from the wrath to come and put faith in Jesus. How dare you say that? I'll never believe in Christ. Right? Many of you have, what's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, bringing something over here. Yep, distracting. Um, but also the, the sentimentality. This is, this is so violates my sentiments that I'm, I can't believe it. And as difficult as that is, as I have had friends and relatives who, um, to my knowledge, perished without Christ, uh, as difficult as that is, the sentimental weightiness of a situation in no way, beloved, in no way takes away from the objectivity and the reality of a truth, right? Um, another argument, uh, this is one that I've been involved with. Your friend says, I can't bring myself to believe in cessationism, right? That the apostolic gifts, the, the willful use of the apostolic gifts that those have ceased, I have too many friends who are great people that believe in this. And you say, you, that, so that's just a sentimental argument, right? I have too many friends that believe in this. And you would, you would gently, lovingly counter back, hey, I get it, I do too, but we have to stick to the text of the Word of God. Or another friend that says, I see what you're saying about cessationism from the text, but I've seen some crazy things besides. And I've had someone say this to me in a form. If I look out the window and see a magenta elephant flying, you can't tell me that I did not see a magenta elephant flying. Okay. I had someone say 
almost identically that to me once a pastor. And you would respond back saying something like, I hear what you're saying, but we have to be careful of our epistemology. Scripture over experience and sentiment. Even if you did see a magenta elephant flying, if Scripture says through good and logical necessary inference that there is no such thing as magenta elephants that flies, then there is, then you did not see objectively a magenta elephant flying, notwithstanding the sensationalist experience, sensational experience that you may have had. Scripture, not our experience, has the highest say in what we know to be true. And this is a great logical fallacy in the Pentecostal movement. Who was, Sam, someone was about to say something. Go ahead, Ian, please. Yeah, exactly. I can't bring myself to believe in a God who would do A, B, or C, right? And we get that. There's some very uncomfortable things in Scripture. The Joshuan campaigns, uh, hell itself. It simply tells us no man made this up, right? No man's going to make up a religion where everyone goes to hell. Everyone deserves to, right? Man's fabric is far too decadent and self-worshipping to do that. Um, and so, and so that's, a, that's a sentimentality fallacy right there. I can't bring myself to. There's, there's emotion, there's sentiment, there's feelings that have taken, that have sat on the throne of epistemology and all other things bow to it. And that's a very, very dangerous place. And that, we've seen that, I think you could argue, someone needs to do their PhD on this, so they probably have, and I just don't know it exists do their PhD on the shift in education, educational philosophies in America, especially at the university level, how, how academia has shifted to subjective sentimentality, dictating pursuits of academia, rather than these objective sciences and being subject to them, right? Where a pursuit in academia, it used to be like, here's the sciences um, and the classics, Right, And there's this big body of objectivity. And in academia, the goal is me subjected to what has been observed by man and achieved by man in, revelation, in general revelation and in special. We enter into here um, in, a, in a submissive way, saying what has been done in literature, what has been achieved in logic in the humanities and the sciences. And I come and I sit underneath that and, and, and I, I, I maintain a proper logical epistemology, but now this has shifted where, where you have uh, gender ideology, uh, feminist uh, studies, um, uh, a sexual ideology, sexual, the history of, of sexual ideologies, and this shifts to where man now is at the top and what man feels, what he wants, um, his idolatrous pursuits. These now have replaced this and so you've shifted the epistemology and everything else is to become subjective and submissive to me. And part of the reason for that is we've, we've forgotten this. That's a small, and there are many other reasons that people a million times smarter than me could, could show you. But that's part of what's happening in education. And we have to be very careful of that because that, has, that crosses over into our spiritual endeavors as well. Right? But the ultimate expression of that is the Lord reigns, let the earth tremble. Yes. Do you, do you think that, do you think that the, the parts that you're 
What arts? Just classical, like classical art to um, your more modern art practices. Uh, yeah, and, that's, and that's, a great, like that's a great observation. Like even music. Yes. You know, um, liberal arts as far as like. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a, that's a great observation. Um, I'm not skilled or uh, experienced enough in that field of study to be able to probably competently comment. Maybe some of you who have, could be. I will say something I've heard guys more experienced in this field who are regenerate men talk about how they've seen that the quality of the arts be decreasing rapidly. And they would say it's because of this. You know, we're dropping paint from 30 feet up on a canvas that has a banana on it with a nail on the left side can become like a, 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 a $25 million piece instead of something like, you know, Starry Night that took incredible training and discipline and, and skill. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. There's always distortion. And even in music as well, they would say the same thing. Majorly. And yeah, John's a musician, so you could say. Yeah. Yeah. But the message and undertones and what it's pushing the different the North Face and its exactly. new campaign um, is, is spot on. The only way to go when you abandon God and some of these preeminent expressions that are hardwired in us of his image, the only way to go when you start deviating from that is down in all things your ability to discern truth from error your ability to create and express the yourself and and god's glory in the arts and many other things the only way to go is down and this is why as a church and as men and as the church of god it's very very important today that we don't let culture pull us that's always a danger in every generation that the cultural water pulls us, right? But that we say, no, we're going to actually pull back harder the other way, not because we're, we're like, you know, taking our ball and bat and going home, but because we understand that when a fish is in the water, it doesn't always know it's wet. So it's very important to know the tendency to get pulled with this slide. And, and we don't want to be a product of our culture. We want to be a product of Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Right? 
And this is why it's very important that we try to get away from doctrinal error and lukewarmness and this, this flipped this flipped emphasis that's happening just in the minds of culture. Very, very important. Um, if you have to go, go, but I'm probably going to go to like 710 because I really want to finish these fallacies. So just do what you need to do. Number five, the appeal to fear fallacy, a big one. The appeal to fear. Someone attempts to persuade and further their argument by instilling fear rather than explaining the logical or moral veracity and necessity of a point. And this is a type of propaganda that's used. And you have to be careful of propaganda because the more you're culturalized rather than scripturalized, it's hard to recognize when propaganda is coming at you. And every tyrannical regime has been fueled by propaganda. You study what Pol Pot did, you study what Mao did, you study what Hitler did, you study what our country has started to do a little bit, it's propaganda. What is propaganda? An attempt to persuade, often with an appeal to fear, right? And or with, with or without one's audience having carefully weighed out, what is this appeal? Mm -hmm. And often what happens is, like with Mao and with the Jews, with Hitler, they made people afraid of the Jews in part. There's lots of things happening. And I'm no, I'm no German scholar of you know, the 1930s by any means. But in part, people feared the Jews as this kind of gradually got instilled in a culture. And once you make a people afraid of something, what can you do to them and with them? You control them. Thank you, 14-year-old Owen. You can control them, right? And it becomes easy to control them. And once people have fallen to the logical fallacy of the appeal to fear, and it's usually through like a mass psychosis, right? And, and the book, uh, the, the new book called uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, I've been going through it slowly, documents this. It was written after um, COVID. It was written in like 2022. It's very fa it's fascinating by... Uh, he was a German guy or a Dutch guy. Real good. Anyhow, he shows how mass psychosis can slowly start to happen where you condition a people because of their fear of some negative thing and then they'll buy into something, often making great moral compromises they, that they might not usually make. But they do this because they're not grounded and they're easily persuaded by logical fallacies. There are good things to fear. Flee the wrath to come, Scripture says. Uh, carry a sawed-off shotgun when you're in grizzly country, right? That's, that's good things to respond to in fear. Um, the appeal to fear, if you talk about Jesus with people you don't who don't worship him, you're going to isolate yourself. That's the appeal to fear. If you don't wear a mask or get vaccinated, you're going to cause someone else's death. Appeal to fear, right? No logic in that, zero. Um, many people in town will get upset if we say that a boy pretending to be a girl can't use the locker room. So we shouldn't do that. Appeal to fear. Um, okay, you get it. Um, the straw man fallacy. Uh, you're, this is a very common one. It's, it's easier to take down a six-foot man made of straw than a six-foot tall man. Right? This is where your opponent misrepresents your argument, so it's easier for them to take down. This happens a lot when people gossip about each other. They'll misrepresent like what someone's issue is or what they're trying to further and they'll make it easy to dismantle it and make it easy for, that, for them to make that other person look bad. And this is sin. It's sinful. Um, 
Uh, easy example, dad, son, I think you've been playing too, much, too many video games lately. Son, oh, so you think I should just throw out all my games in the garbage, never play a game again, and just sit in my room and stay, stare at the wall all day long, huh, dad? Nope, that's not what dad said, <laughs> right? Uh, here's another one, a common one, the Ron DeSantis administration. Classroom instruction, this is quote, references are there. By school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that's not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Teaching kindergarten kids that they can be whatever they want to be is inappropriate for children. It's not something that's appropriate for any place, but especially not in Florida. That was the argument. And then many leftists come back with a straw man and say, this is a don't say gay bill, you can't, you're not allowed to say gay, it erases LGBTQ identity, history, culture, and wants to isolate and get rid of these students and kill people and all this stuff. That's a straw man argument, okay? Gotta be careful when you watch the news, have your logical fallacies ready. Uh, bulverism, another one, bulverism. Um, this is when someone avoids showing how and why an opponent's, opponent's argument is objectively wrong and instead assumes it's wrong, often followed by a form of psychoanalyzation. Why it's wrong. C.S. Lewis coined the term bulverism. And I just want to quote from him how he came up with this. He says this, quote, it's a fascinating, in the course of the last 15 years, I found this vice so common, this is in like 1949, so common I had to invent a name for it. I call it bulverism. Someday I'm going to write the biography of its imaginary inventor, Ezekiel Bulver, whose destiny was determined at the age of five when he hears his mother saying to his father, who had been maintaining that two sides of a triangle were together greater than a third, oh, you say that because you're a man. At that moment, Ezekiel Bulver assures us, there flashed across my opening mind the great truth that refutation is no necessary part of argument. Assume your opponent's wrong, explain his error, and the world will be at your feet. Attempt to prove that he's wrong, or worse still, try to find out whether he's wrong or right, and the national dynamism of our age will thrust you to the wall. That is, I mean, that guy's a prophet. That's everything you see today, especially with CRT, right? Speaking of which, an example of bulverism, all white people are racist. You just don't see this because you're, right, you're white. Um, I was rereading through Robin D'Angelo's book. Uh, she has a couple books on this. She's sort of the patron saint of, of critical theory, and it's just total Marxism. You understand that, right? Critical theory is Marxism with a new, it's Karl Marx, everything he wanted to push with a new fancy term on it, okay? It is demonic. She says, quote, it's not possible. I mean, look at these words. It's not possible for your parents to have taught you not to be racist. So those of you who grew up with believing parents, it wasn't possible for them to teach you not to be racist. Racism is a form of hate, persistent, systematic hate. John says in 1 John 4, if you hate your brother, who you, you hate someone who you do see, you can't, you can't love God who you don't see. You're not saved. Or for your parents to have been free of racism themselves. This is not possible, and speaking to an American white audience, this is not possible because racism is a social system uh, embedded in our culture and its institutions. Right? That's the bulverism fallacy right there. Yes. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, she's white. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I assumed, yeah, she's white as white, right? This is such a fallacious fallacy. It's such an abandonment of the image of God, and it's on purpose, beloved. Let's, let's recognize that. Ezekiel uh, Bulver, he's fictitious. Clive Staples recognized this a long, almost 100 years ago. 
and you do too. You don't even have to know about. Or things like you can't understand this because you weren't hugged as a child. Or you're unable to see the legitimacy and positives of a non-Christian culture because you've been brainwashed with the Bible. Bulverism. Don't fall for it. Uh, equivocation, finally, number eight, a common one. When someone changes the meaning of a word in the middle of an argument. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Ian. Gender and sex, all of a sudden, now that, that the culture has made this push to separate those, and even it's a science now, you can go to a university and pay a hundred grand a year to study how these are different, how gender and sex are now separate concepts. No. <laughs> That's equivocation, among other things. A funny example by old Benjamin Franklin, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we will hang separately. Right? You remember when he said that, when he signed the good old declaration of, we're not dependent upon you, King George, any longer. Um, here's a, a more real, here's a more contemporary one. The Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, but today we do not see equality. Many people in our country make 50 times more money than others. They live in 8,000 square foot houses while some live in apartments. Some have five cars while, while others have one. So then nobody could say that things are equal in our country. It's not true. Therefore, we must vote for this progressive agenda to recapture equality as our constitution asserts. We must level the playing field and allow others to share in the high paying jobs and people who make the most money should pay a higher percentage of taxes. Equivocation. What have they equivocated on? What have they just changed the definition of? Equality and what have they made it to, what have they made the new definition of equality? Equity. Equity, oh and you're on fire this morning, man. Glory to God. The argument changed the constitution's definition of equality to equity. These things are easy for you guys to see. You could elaborate on this, just a couple of fallacies. May God strengthen us to walk in his truth as men who stand on the alert, or on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that we do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for Christ who single-handedly has done the work to save us from the hell we deserve. We are no better than those who commit these fallacies or who are lost or enslaved to abominable sins. We, we were once some of these, all of us, and would be, I personally would be worse, Lord, as you saved me out of the gutter. Father, I pray that we would gird up the loins of our mind and be ready to not be taken captive by empty and vain philosophy, to speak the truth in love, to expose error, as your word says, to contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude 3 tells us. Save people. Use us in our meager efforts to save people. Thank you for a wonderful year together and in trust looking at your call to men. And Father, may we, now that we're accountable for the things we've heard, may we uh, grow from these things and improve on them. Until we meet again in the fall, Lord willing, for our continuation in men's leadership, bless these brothers of mine. May they have a wonderful, encouraging summer in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.